Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. Morning. I'm Pastor Craig, if I haven't got to meet you. I was struck just by this passage and just how strange it is. So if you are here and Maybe you haven't been to church for a while. Maybe you've never been to church, watching online. And it seems odd. It seems like it doesn't fit. Uh, How could you possibly read this in the world of today? Then you are onto something. Because it should seem that way. It should seem strange. Whether you have been in the church a long time or not, I, myself, I wasn't raised in the church, and the first time I started going to Christian things, it seemed very bizarre. And that's the way it should be, to an extent. But I do want to encourage you to try and hear uh, what this word claims to be. It does claim to be a word from God. You should be encouraged if it seems strange, but you should also be challenged. Why does it seem strange? Is that on me? Is that on us? Or is that on God? Where does the source of the strangeness lie? It seems maybe melodramatic. It seems maybe absurd. The last section is a little apocalyptic. But let's try to understand it for what it at least claims to be. And then we can see if God has something in store for us. I think there's some amazing truths in here that we're going to want to integrate into our life. Let's pray. God, we do praise you. We praise you for this day, even with the bad weather. We know that you are sovereign. You are the Lord of Lords, and you have set this time apart as you have set us apart in Christ. And so we do pray, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit would be true to your promises, that you would take this word and comfort those who are weary, who are downtrodden, who are heavy laden, that we would receive the mercy. And God, we do also ask for the challenge to know that we have hard hearts and we need you to break through them. We need your word, the sword of the Spirit, to break through them, that we would surrender, that we would submit to you. Lord, you know us better than you know ourselves. And so we ask for your spirit to be mighty, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jerry and I have been walking through the book of Daniel, and chapter 9 is a pretty interesting uh, start to this chapter because we get a little insight into his personal life. Daniel, we are told, is basically reading through his scriptures, the book of Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says that the exile is going to be over in 70 years, and Daniel thinks, wait a second, I've been here about 66 or so years, so maybe it's about to end. So he's read probably Jeremiah 25 or Jeremiah 29, where he offers this promise, you're going to go into exile, but it's going to last 70 years. But Daniel also knows that 
there were a lot of curses promised to Israel when they would disobey and they would be cast out into exile and then God would only turn back if they confessed their sin and repented. So he thinks, it seems like it's about to end, but Israel needs to confess and repent, so we better do that because God's promise is about to come true. And so that's what we have in chapter 9. He starts to confess. He starts to repent for himself and on behalf of Israel. And then we see that God responds. And so I want to look at uh, these two first two aspects. I call them desperation and, and confidence. This response to the promises of God that Daniel uh, gives us here. Because if, if we think of this as a kind of text that is strange, what would it be like for us to receive it properly, to, to pray like Daniel, to ask, what, how do we even receive a text like this? And what would that mean? And so I think the first overwhelmingly clear aspect of his prayer is that he is aware that redemption is needed. There is a desperate plea for mercy all over that text. And I know it was a long text, but I wanted us to read it partly for this reason, that we would see the sense of desperation that he has. The sense of he is not afraid to name who he believes God is and who he, what he believes the sin is. And there's a pretty nice ACTS, if you've heard that acronym. That's an acronym that gets used for prayer a lot of times. Adoration, where you adore God. C is the confession, confessing. T is thanksgiving, you're giving thanks for his mercy. And then S is supplication, where you're just asking God to do something. And so if you're ever wondering, if you just need help in prayer, you don't know what to say, go to Daniel 9, read the first... 19 or so verses. That's a good place to start. And so he has a lot of great descriptions of who God is. God is a God of steadfast love. He is a God who keeps covenant, who has given us his commandments. He is a great and awesome God. We read in verse 4. But what he spends most of his time in, which is appropriate for where he's at in exile is naming all of the different ways he and Israel have sinned. All the different ways. Just to name a few, if you just look towards the start there in verse 5, he just throws out a lot of different words for the sin. We have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly, we have rebelled, turned aside, we have not listened. And he goes on later and later. You get the sense that he's, he's getting on all sides of the sin. And that's an ancient uh, Christian spiritual discipline, is kind of studying your sin, trying to understand it, which does take some courage just to face it, Right? But there's a lot more to do than just to say, sorry, God, and move on. He wants to get comprehensive here. 
Do you want to get comprehensive when you confess your sin? We do it every week because we think it's essential to being a Christian. How can you be a Christian without being aware of your sin? But instead of it just being rote, let me get it through, make sure I know the mercy and move on, we need to really sit with it, to face it. And I want us to be thinking about what that would mean to not run from it, to ask ourselves, why do we run from it so much? Do we try to figure out where it comes from? Why? Do we try to do that with a Christian friend, a mentor, an elder, a pastor? We need help. We can't see what we don't see, right? Do we study our sin in that way? Do we try to learn to grieve over it more? So I want us to see that he is being quite comprehensive in this confession of sin. He's also being communal. And this should strike us as well. Daniel, for all we know, was an incredibly righteous man. Had seen a lot of success in the world and had seen a lot of suffering when he followed God, regardless of what the, the Babylonian rulers were trying to get him to do. And yet he is confessing on behalf of Israel. This was an important text. As some of you know, our denomination, I guess at this point, it's like seven years ago or so, uh, went through a process of confessing their historic sins of racism. And this was an important text for them to understand because Daniel is clearly taking on the responsibility of the sins of Israel. It's like he's gotten past this. He said, who, who did it? Was it you? Was it me? It wasn't me. It was you. Let's not, I don't want to be blamed. He seems to be taking on responsibility for his community. He's so one with them that if they have sinned, it's as if he has sinned too. He wants to cry out, have mercy upon us, God. He's gotten past this sort of individualistic way. Now, of course, he's not dispensing with individual responsibility. You don't have to go there. We're big, big people. We can get beyond the false dichotomies. But it is striking in the way that he confesses. And he says, I have confessed my sin, and I am confessing Israel's sin. He's comprehensive, and he is communal. He is so aware of just how terrible the sin is. He moves on, so if we're still in ACTS, we're going to come back to the sin stuff. But the T normally is a thanksgiving, and he's not quite there yet. So he's more like praying for mercy. He's not quite ready to give thanks for it because he hasn't seen it yet. We have already in Christ, so we can go to the T with confidence. But for him, he's, he's crying out for mercy, right? But what's striking here is that he knows his only hope for mercy is God's righteousness. His only hope is God. And I want us to think about this tension because he is so aware of his and his community's sin. And that makes his prayer bold. 
It doesn't make him sheepish. It doesn't make him falsely modest. I don't know, God, if you happen to be listening to me. How many of us pray like this? God, if you have time today, I have a couple things I would like you to help me with just to get through the day. And we think that that's humility. Where that is just projecting what we think God is like. God must be limited. He must not really care. My sin's not that bad anyway. He doesn't need to hedge his bets. He doesn't need to put up some kind of fake modesty. He says, we have done wickedly, God, and our only hope is you. Where else can I turn? I'm not going to turn anywhere else. That would be foolish. Because everywhere I look is sin. My only hope is you, God. So he is freed to press in and boldly cry out for God's mercy. Do you see how that, that, that tension can hold? Instead of being afraid of talking about sin, instead of trying to shy away from it, it can embolden us. Because if we face our sin, the light of God's glory will become all that much brighter, and we will know that is our only hope. How could you have hope in us? How could you possibly have hope in us? So he is able to do that. He's able to say, God, you are right. Did you catch that part too? You are right in sending us to exile. You are right in punishing us. That's an amazing statement. Because remember, for Daniel, he's now 66 years into this exile where he saw his country destroyed, the temple desolated. They took all sorts of sacred aspects out of the temple back to Babylon. The ancient world then would have assumed that this little God of Israel is weak and powerless compared to the God of Babylon. So the God of Israel has been shamed and mocked. He calls it a byword. We have become like a byword, which is, which is Bible speak for saying we have become embarrassed in the eyes of the world. We are a mockery to you, God. Look what has happened. And in that context, he's able to say, and you are just in doing that. Because we have deserved it. And when he admits that, do you see what it does? When he's so focused on God, when he admits that he deserves that, and that Israel deserves it, he can say, what else do we deserve? Nothing. So my only hope can be to cry to you, God, to who you are. Who is God? He is righteous, he is just, and he knows he is a God of mercy and forgiveness and love. That's his only hope. 
He is praying desperately and boldly because he can rely on God and his promises. Which is an important thing for us to realize because I think sometimes we get the sense that if we're not praying for, I don't know, stuff, stuff that could really be impressive, like lots of new cars or God pay off my credit card debt or pay off whatever, like that would be easy to point to and impressive then we're not really praying boldly. No, bold biblical prayer is based on the promises of God. Daniel knew what God had promised. We should search the scriptures to know what we can rely on. We can rely on all of the commands that God has given us, all of the promises that he has said he has given us in Christ, and we can cry out boldly for those, the fruits of the Spirit. Joy in the midst of suffering. God's constant presence. All of these things. It's not a conditional. If I do this, then I know you will give this. It's a, God, you have promised to give me this. Daniel knows the promises of God, and it makes him more active, more urgent. It doesn't doesn't lead him to just sit back and say, well, we're going to get out of exile in a few years, so... Let's wait to see the show happen. Do you see that, how that is counterintuitive? That if we are really aware of the promise of God, that should make us more desperate in crying out for it. Right? He didn't promise that the worship service would be perfectly silent. Right? What did he really promise? Well, Daniel gets a very quick response to this bold and desperate prayer. So if he's very aware that redemption is needed, he is then confronted with this declaration that redemption is coming. So that's where the confidence is meant to come in. You have this bold desperation, and then you have this confident hope. Verse 24, he's told very clearly what is going to happen. Six things are going to happen. God is going to finish the transgression. He's going to put an end to sin. He's going to atone for iniquity. He's going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal both vision and profit, which just means to authenticate it, to make sure that it's going to uh, be fulfilled. And he's going to anoint a most holy one. Probably not place there, probably one. Those six things are pretty clear. The rest of the passage has been debated, to say the least. The 70 weeks. Um, Let me just say, if you want to talk more about this, if you perhaps have a dispensational background, I can uh, send you some a great commentary that I found this week that really gets into this, because there are some Christian traditions that go all sorts of crazy on the 70 weeks. And sorry, that's not fair. I should, I, I should repent. I shouldn't say all sorts of crazy. That's not fair. It's, it's out of good intention. They're trying to take seriously the word, so I, I shouldn't have said that. There is a huge history of interpretation of the 70 weeks. We don't have time to get into all of it, but I'm happy to talk more or send you guys some materials if that's your, your background. 
The 70 weeks, there are some things that are clear. And one helpful just way to read scripture whenever you're reading it is to let the clear passages interpret the less clear. One thing that's clear is that it obviously is not weeks. Nobody thinks it's literal weeks uh, because that would have been less than a year and a half and even Daniel knew it wasn't 70 weeks because he was still alive and he wouldn't have included in his prophecy because then it wouldn't have been true. It's obviously not literal weeks. The word week can also be seven, so it's 77s or 70 weeks. So it's clearly symbolic. And seven and 10 being the two big numbers that you take symbolically in scripture. Seven being complete. God created the world, right, in seven days. And 10 being the full number. The Ten Commandments is the full uh, description of God's law. The Ten Plagues, he is really devastating Egypt with the ten plagues. So it seems to be a complete number. Jesus says to Peter, if you remember, Peter asked him, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven. And Jesus said, no, 77 times. And that didn't mean to Peter, once you get to 78, though, you're good. You don't have to forgive. It's not what he meant. He meant always. But to the purpose of the 70 weeks, he then explains that really there are three chunks in the 70 weeks, in these 70 uh, sevens. The first chunk is seven of them, which should be, if you think symbolically, it means it's a complete time. And if it's a complete, it's like God is sovereign. He is in control. It's going to be a short, complete time that this first thing is going to happen, which is the word to restore and build Jerusalem and the coming of an anointed one. That seems to be pretty clearly the word that went out to Cyrus, who was a Persian king, who allowed Israel to rebuild. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe this. Ezra would have been an anointed priest, so he is there leading the restoration of Jerusalem and the temple. That happens pretty soon after Daniel. It seems to be that the first chunk is that. God is fulfilling his promise. The second chunk, the 62 sevens, it shall be built again, being Jerusalem, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So there's development of the city, but it's going to be troubled. That's a long time, right? The 62 sevens seems to be a longer time than the first section. It's going to feel troubled. It's going to feel extended. God, where are you? That is exactly what happens. Ezra and Nehemiah lead Israel in rebuilding Jerusalem, but it takes so much longer than they think, and then they're never really out of exile because they're still ruled by foreign powers. So it's like exile-ish. Until Jesus comes, it's exile-ish. They're still waiting for salvation. But then we get from Daniel the final seven. The final week, after 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. How is that not Jesus? He is the anointed one, the Messiah, and he was cut off and he had nothing. This is amazing that this was prophesied to Daniel, right? Daniel receiving this prophecy over 500 years before Christ comes. The anointed one, the Messiah, is not supposed to be cut off, God. 
We heard last week, right? Peter is rebuked. He's called Satan because he doesn't think that's supposed to happen. But here we have in Daniel, yeah, he's going to be anointed, but he's going to be cut off and have nothing, literally nothing on the cross. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. This most likely refers to what was the cataclysmic event around Jesus' time, which was the fall of Jerusalem. And Jesus, you can see in the Gospels themselves, he is often prophesying about the end of the world. But he bounces back and forth, like a prophet would do, between the end of the world and the fall of Jerusalem. Because the fall of Jerusalem is so cataclysmic to what God had been doing in Israel, it's as if they are one event. And so I want us to think about this kind of prophetic telescoping, which means if you think of it, the old telescopes, right, they're kind of like one piece, and then you kind of spread it out. The prophets, and it gets picked up in the New Testament all over the place, talk about the last days but they were talking about the last days that are to last for centuries. I can think of just one example. In First Peter, he says it's the last days, but that letter probably wasn't written for 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus died. So he's obviously not talking about a day like we think of it. He's talking about the era. Now, why would a prophet want to put these two types of events together? The final end of history and Jesus' coming. Why would it get described as if it's almost one event? Because the cataclysmic thing that happened on the cross is as if judgment day began. And so this is prophetic, apocalyptic speak to get us to wake up. Maybe we need to wake up right now. Not calling anyone out. But this is prophetic Bible speak to say something cataclysmic is about to happen. That judgment day, that scary thing that is way distant in the future, you need to act as if it's already happened. That the promised future and the promised verdict that you are worried about, you have already received in Christ. That the desolations that are decreed for the world at the end of history have already begun in Jerusalem, and they began on the cross. That's why this, this confusing, apocalyptic thing is talking about it in these, uh, as if it's one event, because it's getting him to see, Daniel, I am here. I hear your prayer. My promises will be fulfilled. You are right. Seventy years is the end of the exile. This is how it's going to end. It's going to end in 70 weeks. It's going to end because I do not give a promise that I do not fulfill. And it's going to end when the anointed one comes and is cut off and all these other things happen. The point of the 70 weeks is to give comfort and assurance to Daniel that he would know 
His people will be rescued. You will be rescued. It should give us incredible, incredible confidence. Because we are better off than Daniel. We are in this final seven, the final week, as it's described to Daniel, because the cataclysmic event has happened already. We don't have to just trust an angel's word that has said this will happen in some 70 symbolic weeks. We can trust the testimony of the eyewitnesses of Jesus that he has been raised from the dead, and either that has happened or it has not. And if it has, how much bolder and desperate and confident ought our pleas for redemption be? How much more sure ought we to be that we are in exile? And how much sure should we be that this is not enough, that we want to get out of exile? So if we think about this sort of bold desperation, it should surely lead us to act differently than those around us. I chose that first Peter passage because it has that phrase, exile. It, it, it treats the Christians as if they are in exile. But it has this combination in that. I'm trying to, trying to get us to focus on this combination of confidence and desperation. Because it says, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you are ransomed. Conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. You know that this is not the end. If this is heaven, then it sucks. You know this cannot be the end. But you do know that you have been ransomed, that you have been forgiven, that you have been bought with a price, that you are not your own. So what does it mean to have this combination Daniel is still living by the home that is really his. He's still not only praying for the temple, praying for Jerusalem, he's still thinking of the time of the evening sacrifice. Did you catch that when he said Gabriel came back? He said Gabriel came back at the time of the evening sacrifice? Daniel hasn't been to the evening sacrifice in over 65 years. Can you imagine not going to church for 65 years and then still remembering not only what time did church start anyway, but then thinking, oh, this was the time we came to the Lord on that day. He's still confident of his home. So I want us to ask, where do we struggle? On the desperation side or on the confidence side? on the remembering you are in exile side or being confident that you know it will end. Which side do you struggle with the most? Do you see that tension? For me, it's very clear that I struggle with remembering I am in exile because I'm so worldly. I'm so comfortable in this world. That's probably where a lot of us are at, right? Go get it. 
I'm not that comfortable. <laughs> to realize just how desperate we ought to be is to, me- is to remember that we are in exile. So if that is the problem, sometimes we have aspects that force us to remember, and that's the sort of involuntary suffering that we undergo, right? COVID, maybe it's racial oppression, maybe it's personal betrayal and abandonment. There are things that we are forced to undergo and we remember, right, this is not my home. I am in exile. How could I have forgotten? But there are other times where we need to remind ourselves This is really the source of spiritual disciplines, like fasting, like kneeling when we confess. It should be uncomfortable to to an extent. What are ways that we deny our worldly comforts because they are such a good distraction for us? They inoculate us and get us to forget that we're in exile. So what would that mean for you? To try to develop this feeling of exile if you are too comfortable. My go-to is to just relax on the couch. This is the way life should be. What? Where does that come from? Certainly doesn't come from the Bible. Certainly doesn't come from the Bible. Paul talks about this, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. And he had a lot of instances where it was involuntary. A lot of suffering and persecution. But he also talks about the voluntary. He's talking about it in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. He actually, I think the literal Greek is like, I pummel my body. I don't know what he meant exactly, but it was clearly some type of self-discipline because he knew that he was still in exile. And he had to remind himself if he was too comfortable here, to say, God has something far more better, far, far better. Why do we forget? Is it because we are afraid to face our sin? Do we minimize it? Do we downplay it? Yes, for me, yes. I downplay it. Do you realize how foolish that is to ignore the sin? I mean, I, 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 th- I think of it as a, an oncologist who doesn't really want to learn from the science of cancer. Like, let's not talk about the bad stuff. Let's talk about all the things that are going well. You're a terrible oncologist. Are we afraid? What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of feeling out of control? It's a big one for a lot of us. We just need to learn that surrender is the way to freedom. There is no other way. Grabbing control more on your life will not lead you to happiness. Realizing that we are still in exile feeding that sense of desperation. How much more of Christ do we need? How much more of Christ ought we to want? That's what we ought to try to face. Maybe you're on the other side, though. Maybe you are sorely there, 
that you are in exile, maybe you are hopeless, you are struggling, and you just can't seem to take comfort that the exile will ever end. Take comfort that Jesus' salvation really is enough. What do we do to develop that? Well, in a way, that too is kind of giving into the powers of the kingdom of the world because it's saying what? That the kingdom of the world has the power to take your hope. To take what you care about and win. We have to feed this sense that I am not my own, and that's good news. This obsession that we have with freedom and choice, we need to be surrendering ourselves to something that is constant, like reading our Bible every day no matter what, going to church every Sunday no matter what, because we need the constant reminder that there is something outside myself that is much, much better much, much better so that it will form us to realize that this exile will end. Here's a taste. I need to constantly taste it. There's a kind of, of fearlessness in exile that we need. A kind of courage. I've been reading Lord of the Rings a little bit more recently. The kids are kind of getting into it. and There's such Beautiful pictures of courage. We're not going to need courage in heaven, you know. Everything will be overtaken. No sin will be there to repent of, to face. But we need courage now. Fearless, but not in the world's eyes. Fearless in facing our sin. Fearless in feeding a bold sense of desperation. God, how could my hope be in anywhere else? Jesus asked Peter, are you too going to leave me? And Peter says, where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. I love that. Knowing that you have been ransomed, conduct yourself with fear. Wouldn't that be amazing if we were a church like that, boldly desperate for the glory of God? boldly knowing that the hunger of the nations has come in Christ, and that is our only hope. That is what we can be. That is what we are called to be. Daniel says that your temple and your nation are called by your name, God. Do not let us become a mockery. That's what we can say. Your church, Lord, is called by your name. Let us be known for that. Let us be known by your love as we fearlessly face our sin and know that it will not win. It has not. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you like this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.